That's it. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? So one of the things that I love most about this podcast is when I'm fortunate enough to have people on the show who I not only respect, but just love as a person, as a human being. And the woman that we have on today is certainly one of those people. So today we have Emily Fletcher on the show. She is the founder of Ziva Meditation and one of the leading meditation instructors, teachers, for extraordinary performance. So she wrote a book last year called Stress Less, Accomplish More. It debuted at uh, number seven of all books on Amazon. So that's her next to Michelle Obama and Simon Sinek and all these other people. It was really remarkable. And so uh, she's been featured on everything from the New York Times to Good Morning America, the Today Show, you name it. She's taught more than 20,000 people how to meditate for high performance. And really, the the Ziva technique is this trifecta of mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting. And she's basically going to take you through each of these three things, show you how you can integrate these into your daily life, and is really this evolution on not just bringing calm, presence, peace into your life, but really understanding how we can take uh, this new peace of mind and apply that to creating the life, business, relationships that we desire. Uh, she has an amazing story of coming through Broadway. She's got an incredible high kick, uh, which unfortunately you cannot see in this podcast. But if you go to our, our show notes, I'll definitely include a photo of that. And um, she's a wonderful woman, hilarious, uh, very, very knowledgeable of what she's teaching. And I'm excited to share some of her wisdom here. So without further ado, here is Emily Fletcher. So I'm sitting here with none other than Emily Fletcher, and I just told her why I was excited to sit with her. And it's because Emily and I have known each other for what, five, five years? Sounds right. Five years. And she has always shown up for me as someone who is deeply excited about what she's doing, what she's learning, and she's masterful at how she shares that from a place of authenticity and real, really offering insight that's like actionable. And I've always loved that about my conversations with you, whether it be about meditation or the voice, or, you know, we were just talking about, what are they called? Telomeres. That's right. <laughs> See so much. Uh, so I'm very excited to have you on the show. Thank you for making the time. I'm so happy to be here. Also, when you said the word authentic, which is the word that's really getting thrown out a lot these days, I heard this quote, which is that, authenticity without kindness is abuse mm. and kindness without authenticity is lying. Wow. Like, come on. That's good. I love that. That's good. Yeah, it's so true. I think in so much of my own work, when I, when I'm trying to tap people into state of like realness or authenticity, it's the oftentimes like the question that comes up, it's like, but what if your authentic experience or truth in that moment is something mean or nasty or like how do you distinguish between what's meaningful to express and like what i always say is that like your objective is to be real and to be kind mm -hmm. and like to incorporate that in all of your communication mm -hmm. is it true is it necessary is it kind yeah totally so what are you doing what's most exciting in your world right now well number one is my son jasper oh, <laughs> boy he's 17 months old and he is a constant delight it's an exercise in presence 
you know, you can teach meditation for thousands and thousands of people and years and years, but nothing has taught me presence like this child. He's changing so quickly and growing so quickly and celebrating so many new, dis new discoveries. Like the best actors are the ones that make you believe that they're discovering something for the first time. Mm. And he genuinely is discovering things for the first time, hundreds of times a day. And so it's, it's captivating. So that's really exciting. Uh, my company is growing like crazy. That's super exciting. It's tripled this year. We, I'm just sharing, you know, 50,000 people have got the book so far, which is so fun. And my husband just started working with me <laughs> at Ziva, which is its own. It's actually much more fun than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Having a kid is more fun than I thought it was going to be. And I'm a big fan of fun. Mm. So I, I mean, I would say I base most of my life decisions on fun <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I'm living in gratitude at the moment. We moved into this new place in Brooklyn and I'm having a fun time decorating it. And yeah, living the dream. You're radiating as you talk about all these things. And so I'm curious if you look back, so you started Ziva how many years ago? Going on nine. Nine years ago. Cool. And so, and this real kind of exponential growth started about? Well, I went, I went full time in 2015. Yeah. Before then, I was still acting and teaching acting and doing Ziva. And so then I quit acting. It was just teaching acting and teaching meditation. And that then it grew. But when I quit teaching acting and went all in on Ziva, that's when things really started rocking. Yeah. Which, you know, not surprisingly, you go all in on a relationship. It, it, you get exponential returns. Same sure. thing with your career. Uh, but I'd say that the launch of the book has has put things into a new, we're in a new echelon now. And, and what crystallized for you about what it was that you were offering to the world with the book? Like what was not clear to you that shifted with the book and how you're running your business? Or what would you say like the things that you did that led to this kind of shift and rapid growth in the company? Well, to me, the book was just a vehicle to reach more people. I don't think there was any massive insights that I had other than the refining of the language and sure. the refining of the tools. But that that was work I had been doing already. You know, anytime you go from teaching live to teaching online, you have to do the best of the best. Because I've been teaching live for nine years now, but the online course, we started in 2013, we revamped it in 2017. And 2017 is really when we developed the Ziva technique. Before then, it was just teaching meditation. Yeah. And I was also in a nest of someone else's, like I was teaching other people's version of meditation. And it wasn't until 2017 that I had the bravery to leave the nest and be like, what do I want to teach? How does nature want to use me as a vessel? What problems am I solving for people? Because I, it was making me mad that the world is filled with so many ex meditators. Mm -hmm. Like, how are you people getting the keys to the kingdom and putting them down? Like, this is it. This is the thing you're looking for. It, it is giving you access to your own bliss and fulfillment in the only place that it resides, which is inside of you. Why are you putting down the keys to the kingdom? And so I started doing deep dive research into my students, other people's students. And I, I started noticing two problems that needed to be solved. One, everybody thinks they're too busy to meditate. And two, people think that they are meditation failures because they think that they have to clear their mind. And so the time piece is massive because even people who were doing quote unquote meditation were thinking that they were too busy for it. But really what most people were practicing was mindfulness mm -hmm. and mindfulness is a derivation of a monastic technique. And so people are like us are doing it. People with busy minds and busy lives are practicing monk meditation. It's making them feel better a little bit in the moment, but they're not seeing a return on their time investment. They put 10, 15 minutes in, they feel better 
but it's not changing the root cause of why they're having headaches, why they're having insomnia, why they're feeling overwhelmed, why they're depressed, why they're having anxiousness. And so the meditation portion of Ziva is really about getting rid of that root cause. It's getting rid of your stress from the past. Yeah. So mindfulness dealing with your stress in the now, like a state change, whereas the meditation that I teach is, is a trait change. It's getting rid of your stress from the past. Mm. That stuff we've been storing in our cellular and now we even know in our epigenetic memory. And as that stuff leaves the body, we're ushered into higher states of performance and, and cognition. And that's where the return on investment comes. So we solve the time piece. And Let then me, can mm -hmm. I, can I follow up on a few things? So one thing that I always like to do in the show is that I feel like when I have really smart people like yourself on is that you will throw out a word that I understand at a high level, which is like oftentimes a real teaching moment for people who are, are listening. And so you talked about how many of those people were practicing mindfulness. And then you talked about some of the benefits of meditation. So if you were to distinguish between those two, what's your understanding of that? Yes. So mindfulness, I would define as the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. Hmm. Beautiful, necessary, especially in this day and age when we've all become bulimic of the brain, you know, hmm. we've just got inflow all the time. And so mindfulness is anytime you're directing your focus, focusing on your breath, imagining your chakras, visualizing something, a walking meditation, we, cooking, when people say cooking is my meditation, what they're saying is I cook mindfully. Yeah. I am present when I cook. Beautiful, very good at dealing with your stress in the now. Now, the type of meditation that I teach, you're accessing a verifiable fourth state of consciousness where the right and left hemispheres are functioning in unison. You're giving your body rest that's somewhere between two to five times deeper than sleep. And you're utilizing these tools that de-excite your nervous system. And when you de-excite something, you create order. When you create order in your body, the lifetime of accumulated stresses that we all have in our cells starts to come up and out. And the big delineation here is that when you start to heal that backlog of accumulated stresses from your cells, this is what ushers you into higher states of performance. This is what allows your brain and your body to accomplish more in less time. Mm -hmm. That's why the book is called Stress Less, Accomplish More, because by it is that backlog of stresses that's making us stupid, sick, and slow. And we can't really afford to be stupid, sick, and slow right now. We got some big challenges to solve sure. as a species. And it solves the big block that everyone has, which is I'm too busy to meditate. It's like, well, if you do this thing and you're investing your time versus spending your time, that's a big difference. No one has time to spend. No one has time to waste. Everyone has time to invest. Mm. Right. So if you're investing 15 minutes twice a day, that's 2% of your day to make the other 98% more amazing. And whereas a lot of people think, oh, well, meditation is like a cute thing that I'll get around to when I have some extra time on my hands. Mm. And we have to change that. We have to start to allow people to frame this as the single most important piece of mental hygiene that we have to be practicing because all these problems, the stress is causing the physical problems, the emotional problems, the societal problems, these are solvable. Hmm. Like they're not incurable and we're treating them like they're incurable. And how do you kind of quantify, because I, I imagine that you have some data that speaks to this, like how is stress impacting people around the globe today? Well, Harvard medical school, 
says that stress is responsible for 90% of all doctors' visits. Wow. So you think about our healthcare system and how much it's costing us. We think about corporate wellness, 90% of all doctors' visits are stress-related. Hmm. And if you if you just think about it in your own life, any ailment that you might have, is stress making that thing worse or better? Do you make better or worse decisions when you're stressed? You know, does your body heal faster or slower when it's stressed? Do you sleep better or worse when you're stressed? You know, so like the answer is it's always worse unless you currently are outrunning a tiger or you currently need to lift a car off a baby stress is not doing us any favors and so you know those you know, those <laughs> they're just tuesday gotta lift a car <laughs> off this baby <laughs> um but it's it's responsible for you know increased blood pressure decreases immune function it's it's responsible for almost 90 percent of insomnia stress weakens your immune system it slows your recovery time. It decreases your skin elasticity. It decreases your brain elasticity. And I would say if you want to really pull that out, I would say it's also responsible for the three biggest challenges facing humanity right now, which is climate change, the fact that our food isn't food anymore, mm. and racism. That's all. Those are all like amplifications of stress. Yeah. And so, and I want to come back to really the, the Ziva technique and the foundations of it and how it's been implemented and taught, you know, all over the world now. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. But what I'm curious to know is I know that you have such an interesting background. So what was the moment when first you were actually just introduced to meditation as a transformational practice for you personally. When did you realize that this was going to become fundamental to Emily being Emily and who you want to be in the world? I have two stories and one of them I've told a thousand times. So I'll just kind of skip that one. But it was the first day of my first meditation class. It cured my insomnia on the first day. Well, and what drove you to the meditation class? Well, I was understudying three leading roles in a chorus line on Broadway, which means you show up to the theater. You have no idea which role you're going to play. So I was living my life in this constant state of fight or flight. And this woman sitting next to me in the dressing room has a harder job than me. She's understudying five of the roles and crushing it. Yeah. Every song, every dance, every bite of food this woman ate was a celebration. And I was like, what do you know that I don't know? <laughs> and she said, I meditate. And I just rolled my eyes and thought, oh, God, one of you. But then I kept having insomnia. I couldn't sleep through the night for 18 months. I was going gray at 26 years old. I was getting sick and injured. And it was confusing why I was living my dream and miserable. And I don't think I'm alone in that story. So many of us have achieved, if not the goal, then a goal that mm. we assumed was going to bring us happiness. And then lo and behold, we weren't. And then we're sadder than we were before because, well, the thing that was supposed to make me happy isn't. So I just thought my happiness would be in my next Broadway show, my next boyfriend, and my next agent, and my next zero in the bank account. And I did that for 10 years. Um, and then finally I was like, I gotta learn. I have to do something. So I learned something. meditation first day, first class. I'm in a different state of consciousness that night. I slept through the night for the first time in 18 months. I have every night since that was 11 years ago. Hmm. I mean, you know, with a couple months reprieve for postpartum, but that was not insomnia's fault. That was my son's <laughs> fault. That's <laughs> yeah. Um, and then so that was one story. Like I knew I was going to be meditating for life after day one. I didn't know I was going to be a teacher yet. I thought at some point I'll teach. I knew almost immediately I'll, I'll, I will teach this. I just thought it'd be when I'm done acting, when I'm done dancing, when I'm done singing. And then I went to India about a year later. So about a year after I learned I was turning 30, I was about to turn 30 
And I took myself to India for just a birthday present. And I just wanted to learn more for me personally. And then I get there and we were going to meditate on the Ganges River at dawn. I should cut back in time. Mm -hmm. I leave Chorus Line Broadway. I go on Chorus Line Tour. I'm in LA. There's a lot of teachers in LA. I've just left Chorus Line Broadway, going on Chorus Line Tour. Our second city is LA. I know there's a lot of meditation teachers there. I'm looking for a group meditation. I email this guy. I'm like, Hey, are you hosting any group meditations? He's like, yeah, why don't you come on Wednesday at six? I show up Wednesday at six. I drive all the way to Venice from downtown. So for my LA folks, you'll understand what a commitment that is. And I show up and it's just him and his girlfriend. And I was like, well, this is not the kind of group meditation experience I was really looking for. And so I'm trying to figure out if they're rapists or weirdos. And finally he's like, no, we were just going to meditate. Come join us. And so I sat on his couch with my purse in my lap. You know, <laughs> arms strapped through the purse, meditating with one eye open. And then finally I realized, okay, they're just, they're not weirdos. They're just meditating. And I finally drop in and afterwards I open my eyes and I see this photo or a painting or something on the ground. And it just struck me. And I said, yeah. what is that? And he said, that's Rish- Rishikesh. And I was like, what's a Rishikesh? And he said, it's this town in India. We do this retreat there every couple of years. Are you coming? And I said, no. And I looked back at the photo and I looked at him and I said, yeah, I'm going to go. And it's actually that photo right there. Wow, really? Yeah, that one in the window. And so cut to six months later, I'm in India. It's dawn and we're about to meditate on the Ganges, but we have to cross this bridge to get to where we were going to meditate. And I stop in my tracks. We're about to cross the bridge and I see the exact snapshot, it's this light at the end of the bridge and it was the sun rising over the Ganges and it was the same frame that I'd seen in wow. LA. And I stopped in my tracks and I started sobbing, crying. And I knew that the me in that moment was going back to the me in LA and saying, mm-hmm. you have to come here, you have to become a teacher. And and so then I started, I got home and I started studying the Vedas and I began a three-year training process to teach. And so you start your journey as a meditation instructor. But even then I thought, well, this would just be a cute side thing that I'll do if I'm not acting. And I just thought, oh, we'll just take my time and I'll just start the process and I'll go really slow. And I started studying the Vedas. And uh, then when I finally graduated, even still, I thought, oh, well, this will just be a side gig. But I moved back to New York to be with my now husband. And I was still acting, still teaching acting and teaching meditation. And there was this one week where I was in final callbacks to play Velma in Chicago, the musical on Broadway. I was launching the world's first online meditation training and I was teaching six acting teachers how to teach the method at the acting school that I had opened. And so I was like, nobody wins here. Like this is, I mean, maybe (laughs) your wife could do this, but like not me. I can't run six companies at once, Uh, not with no staff and no support. And so that was the week I called my agents and I was like, I love you guys so much, but I'm out. I'm going to, I'm doing this. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was intense and, and beautiful. What, and so how did you choose? How did you know that this was your, or did you know that this was kind of your Dharma? That this was the path that you were on at that point? Well, cause even before my intellect caught on, I had been voting with my time and my attention for months. My agents yeah. would be calling me saying, Hey, Emily, we need you to bring us headshots and resumes. And I'd be like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. And then three months would go by. I would never bring them headshots and resumes, but I would have taught 300 people to meditate. And so it was just very clear. My body was already doing the thing that I was yeah. meant to be doing. And thank God that I was able to move towards something that I loved versus away from acting mm. because it had been such a huge part of my identity since I was in fourth grade. I mean, I've been on Broadway for 10 years and that's 
that's not easy to go from show to show to show for 10 years. Like it's very challenging actually. Totally. And, and so to leave that, had I left because I was mad at acting, if I had left because I felt like I was in an abusive relationship with acting, I would have regretted it my whole life. It would have haunted me likely my whole life. Sure. And this was the first thing I found where I loved it as much as or more than sure. acting. And so I was so grateful that I was moving towards and not moving away from. That said, there was still a mourning process. And yeah. so when I was doing my teacher training, I was meditating for about 18 hours a week. And, and it's not just meditation. It's this very intensive, cathartic thing that you're doing for an hour at a time. And it, it compounds. So if you do like four in a day, it's not 4X. It's means you know, exponentially yeah, more yeah. powerful. Sure. So anyway, you're basically purging every stress, every trauma, every sadness you've ever had because nobody wants to learn meditation from a sad, stressy person. Sure. <laughs> and the, the flavor of my purging during teacher training was very much the, the morning of my identity as an actress and saying goodbye to that chapter. But the funny story, side note, is that after I graduated as a teacher and I was sort of done, I'd mourned it, then I get a call from Bayork Lee, who was in the original cast of A Chorus Line, and she directed me in A Chorus Line, and she invited me to sing at Marvin Hamlish's memorial concert. Marvin Hamlish is one of the few people that has an EGOT, so he's like, you know, the yeah, yeah, Emmy, the Grammy, Grammy, Oscar, Oscar Tony. Tony. Yeah. Um, and, and Pulitzer actually, he's a P-got. Oh, and, wow. uh, so anyway, she invited me to sing at his memorial concert because at the ballet, which is the song that I sang in a chorus line was his favorite song. And so I'm thinking it's going to be like 200 Broadway gypsies at a church in New York. And I show up for a dress rehearsal that morning and I had invited my husband to come. And he's like, I'm not going to someone's funeral. I don't know. That's weird. I'm not going. And so I show up for the dress rehearsal. It's at Juilliard. Wow. Mike Nichols is directing it. And I'm going, I'm on stage and over the God mic, I hear Mike Nichols saying, Emily, I want you to bring the microphone with you. Cause we don't know what Liza's going to do. And I was like, Liza Minnelli. <laughs> <laughs> goes, yeah. And then I leave, I go up to the dressing room and I hear this voice, this crazy voice. And I said, who is that? And they go, Oh, that's Aretha's stand in. Oh, and I said, Franklin. <laughs> and they go, yeah. And then we're leaving the dressing room and I see like star number one on the one dressing room, Barbara Streisand. Come on. And so I call my husband. I'm like, babe, um, guess where you're going to be tonight. You're coming to this. <laughs> so that was the last thing I ever did. I was sandwiched in between Liza Minnelli and Aretha Franklin. And then Barbara Streisand was the last performer. And I was just mic drop. I was like, I'm never going to top this this good night <laughs> so, what, so what i'm so curious to hear is i just watched the aretha franklin documentary have you seen it yet mm -mm. it's called um what is the name of the song it is she basically recorded her live album at a church in watts like almost like right after the the riots uh amazing grace is the mm. name of the documentary and i kid you not i get goosebumps talking about it I start watching this documentary and she gets in there and she walks in and almost before she starts singing and I'm like crying. And it was just like, and then when she starts singing, you know, people are on the plane next to me, like watching like Marvel movies and I'm here like crying to this Aretha Franklin, but it's like, it was just so true, so real when she was singing that I was so impacted by it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious as a singer and as a performer, you use your voice to teach people now. And so how does that influence how you are with people now as a teacher and how you used to exist and channel your, your voice to perform, to entertain? Mm. How has that crossed over into how you, you now work as a, as an instructor? It's so funny because I would say that of the three disciplines of singing, dancing, and acting, singing was my weakest. I'm a very good actress. She has quite 
quite the high kick as well. So oh, I am. I have a great high kick. She's I'm a, a great. I'm a very good dancer. <laughs> I'm a very good actress. Singing was always hard for me. I, I mean, I started studying when I was in fourth grade, but I started studying with an opera teacher, which actually did a lot. It did not help me in the musical theater department because I have a very developed soprano range, but Broadway is like that mixy belty, you know, it's like where you bring your chest voice up. You could say anything right now and I'd be like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's the, the Broadway belt. It's that, you know, kind yeah, of brassy, okay. big yeah, sound, yeah, sure. right? Totally. Um, which is soprano is, you know, it's full head voice, it's very yeah. high tones. And Anyway, long story short, singing was always very emotional for me. It it made me confront my biggest fears, my biggest, like all my emotional stuff was wrapped up in my voice. And I had to really, really work at singing and I hated it. I ne it was never fun for me. I never enjoyed it. It was, it always felt like torture. Huh. Like, like you're just taking your soul and putting it on display and like, Oh, here's some phlegm and here's some cord gunk and here's some fear. And it was just, it was always torture. Wow. And now that I'm not singing for a living and yet I've been training vocally since I was in fourth grade, you know, people are like, oh my God, I love your voice. I love your voice. I love your voice when they're listening to meditations. And now I almost take it as an insult. <laughs> I'm such a ding dong uh, because <laughs> I, now I'm like, I don't want people to be responding to my voice. What I think they're actually responding to is the state of consciousness. Because if you hear really great meditation teachers, you know, they, they change your state of consciousness and it's not the vocal tone. There are no vocal tricks happening. It's a lifetime of meditation. You're responding to that. It's Soma flow. Soma is the flow of consciousness. Mm. And, and I, it doesn't happen all the time, but specifically when I'm doing meditations and people listen to them, ideally it is shifting their state of consciousness. And it was so funny when the book came out, people who listened to the audible book, there was so many bad reviews on the audible book because people were like missing the part where I taught meditation. <laughs> I think it's because they checked it out. <laughs> I think they were just like conked out into some different state of consciousness. I'm not saying it's not a valid criticism, but anyway, <laughs> it's, it's interesting, right? Even the example I just gave about Aretha is like, I talked to a friend of mine who's also a singer, Aya, who you know. Oh yeah. yeah. I think she's going to be, they're going to do some stuff. Some I'm doing stuff. some manifesting yeah. tracks and, yeah. and they're going to accompany it. They do some in incredible kind of spiritual music and um, they were at your wedding. Exactly. Yeah, they did was... the, the music at my wedding. And um, when she talked about Aretha singing, she said, like, there's something powerful about the spirit. And like, and when she talked about it again, it's like these people who are there. And it's why I think I'm so impacted by it is even you can see the people. She recorded this album in a church mm. and they said, this is a service. And so the album, like while she's singing, you see people responding to that. And like, they're hearing the words, but the words are attached to this focus on the transcendent, you know, on God. And so it's like, when you talk about shifting consciousness, you know what I mean? Like the, the people who are receiving that are traveling to this transcendent state. Like that's what they're hearing. That's what they're connecting to. And so yeah. it's like, I really, I really believe that it was, it was an interesting for me to see gospel kind of in, in that way and mm -hmm. just like the power of voice. And so actually the only time I feel like I've ever transcended while singing mm. was when I was singing amazing grace in a church mm. and it was at a funeral for a man who had actually sexually molested me. Wow. And the, I was very um, close with his family and they asked me to sing at the funeral. And it, I originally said, no, I was like, that's, I don't think that's a good idea for me or for him or for you. I don't think it's a good idea for anybody. Yeah. And, but I was again, very close with their family and they're like, you know, this is, we we're eyes wide open. Like we all know everything and we still want you to do it. And so I had to sit with it for a long time. And then 
I said, okay, I'll do it, but I'll, I will only sing from the back of the house. Wow. I won't sing in the front because it was him and all of his friends yeah. and I wouldn't perform for them. You know, mm. I was like, I'm not going to, uh, that felt like uh, disrespectful to me to perform sure. for them. But I was, uh, well, at the time I was like 11 through 13, but when yeah. I sang, I was 25 maybe. Wow. And so I, I sang, it was acapella, Amazing Grace at the back of a church. And it felt I mean, I've connected with God. I've transcended. Like that has been a thing you would hope as a meditation teacher. So that experience I've had, but I've never had it singing except for that moment. And it felt like forgiveness and grace and connection with the divine in, in a really special way. What what called you to to power through that and to sing? My love for his family. Mm. And moving towards forgiveness, like knowing that he was doing the best that he could with the tools that he had. And ultimately he was a kid too and dealing with his own stuff. And we were just both doing the best that we could. Yeah. And so what was it like after you sang there? Mm. I don't know if it was anything. It was, it just felt peaceful and like the right thing to do. And also I remember watching at the burial, his parents who had been divorced since we were, since my friend and I were kids and watching them crying over the casket of their son and just having this thought of like, Oh, if you have a kid with someone, it's for life. Yeah. You know, even if the kid dies, even if something happens, when we get divorced, like you're, you're in it for mm -hmm. life. Yeah. And it was just, that was a real interesting wake up call. Almost like we use the word transcendent, but that's like in it for life. It's like, Oh wait, it's mm -hmm. not just me. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is a powerful thing in that for sure. Mm -hmm. And you, I'm curious. So it's like, you know, you've brought up your own experience here and you talked about kind of your own purging as you were training as a meditation instructor. And so how does meditation aid in, you know, so often people, and this is even for me, it's like when I think about going in and seeking out meditation, it's to alleviate current symptoms of stress. Right. And I've never really thought about how it can reduce some of the residue from trauma and, you know, kind of like really challenging experiences like that. And how does, how does meditation impact and help us to overcome and transcend those types of challenges? Mm -hmm. So again, we got to go back to the difference between mindfulness and meditation because yeah. what most people are calling meditation is not going to do that. The yeah. apps, the drop-in studios, the guided videos on YouTube, they're all great, but they're good at dealing with the stress in the now. It's like taking an aspirin when you have a headache, it's going to deal with the symptom. This type of meditation is dealing with the root cause. And, and it's healing, it's healing the body and the cells because it's giving your, you very deep rest, yeah. you know, rest that's five times deeper than sleep. Yeah. And when you do that, not only do you feel more awake on the other side, but you're utilizing these tools that are de-exciting the nervous system. And when you de-excite something, you create order. Mm. When you create order in your cells, the lifetime of stress that we have in there can start to come up and out. The, maybe a different and better analogy is one of a computer. So if you think of your brain as a computer every time you've ever been stressed, every time you've ever, ever been in fight or flight, it's left an open window on your brain computer. Mm. They're called premature cognitive commitments or PCCs. Yeah. And by the time the average adult is 20, we have about 10 million of those. So imagine having 10 million windows open on your computer and then trying to read a book or having a conversation at a party. It's you're, you're wasting so many of your mental and physical cycles 
on the past and the future that you do not have your full operating strength for the present moment. Yeah. And so what meditation is doing is that by de-exciting the nervous system, we go in and we take those windows that have been minimized, right? To survive, we had to minimize them, mm. but then we maximize them and we click X. We open it up and click X, open mm. it up and click X. And so that this purging process, what I was going through when I was mourning my identity as an actress and even still what happened, I mean, I've taught 20,000 people to meditate and wow. they go through almost all of them, some sort of purging, they get sad, they get tired, they get angry, their skin breaks out, they go to the bathroom, they're vomiting, like it's the body rings itself out. Yeah. And and it, it, that's that maximizing the windows to click X. And the good news is that once you do that work, it's never coming back. Mm. You, know, you might pick up new stresses, but even then, when you make yourself more resilient, when you change the way your body metabolizes stress, you can still interact with trauma in a different way. It's not going to leave the same kind of imprints if you've trained yourself on how to be resilient. And the interesting th thing is to me is that that dog that barked in your face when you were five, it didn't just leave one open window that's just staying there maintaining. It, it accrues interest over time mm. because that dog that barked in your face when you were five, now every single time you see a dog, it's kind of re-traumatizing. You know, if you were raped when you were 12 and every time you're in the same situation or around an intimidating person, like re-traumatizing. So it's accruing, it's accruing interest. And so if we don't deal with it, it doesn't just stay the same. The stress gets more and more and more. Yeah. There's a great Carl Jung quote and he says, until we make the, well, it's interesting. This is kind of talking about like, are we making this subconscious or unconscious part of our self conscious or are we, you know, how are we processing it? Because if we're meditating, are we processing these things consciously or subconsciously? Subconsciously. Yeah. I mean, in the Vedas, we don't really talk about conscious or subconscious. It's, it's all self, but the meditation is healing you on a pre-verbal level. This has got not cognitive therapy. It's not like you're going into a meditation and be like, well, now I'm going to heal my parents' divorce. Yeah. You just go in and it's just like sleep. When you go to sleep at night, your body runs a whole host of healing and reparative functions. Yeah. And so when you wake up, you feel better. Your brain is working better. You are smarter. You are actually a more emotionally intelligent. <laughs> but if you don't sleep and you don't go to NREM, then you're not pr processing emotional traumas from that day. So, Anyway, just like when you go to sleep at night, it's not cognitive. Yeah. You're not consciously working through stuff. Same thing in meditation. This is this is where, at least for me, I think that so many people fail to really grasp and commit to it is because of this pressure that we've put on ourselves, because of the the context that we've existed in where we've only achieved anything through doing right and to understand the process of, of i put in effort here and then out comes a result and that when we go into this kind of subconscious like if we will like processing like this again it's like the idea of we don't register it as doing something and so there can't be anything valuable that comes out on the other side and so it's it's this new language of healing and like optimizing our performance that's that's kind of foreign yeah. and i think that it's that that keeps so many people and even myself of you know so much pressure to do to improve to grow to be even just calmer and more content mm -hmm. and to really grasp this this not doing which brings me to like one of the favorite things that you ever said in your meditation your book launch you remember and you just said you're up there it's maybe you could even tell it to me but you you just said it so gracefully and you said less effort 
It's like less effort. That's the whole gig. Is how you less you're effort. get the most out of this. Yeah. The less yeah. effort you use, the more beneficial it will be. And and what most of us are doing, if we're doing, 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 we're running a one-legged race. We have been given two hemispheres of our brain, the left brain and the right brain. And most of us are exclusively using the left brain. We are exclusively using our prefrontal cortex. That is like having a very, very gifted laptop computer and not connecting it to Wi-Fi. That's what we're doing. And we're like, oh, it's so hard. And I have to keep doing it. I have to do more and I have to do harder. It's like, well, just get on the fucking internet and it might be a little bit easier for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just plug into the collective intelligence that is right there waiting to deliver all of your dreams to you. But if you don't ever take the time to settle in and connect to it, it's like, what's the point of having a fancy computer? What's the point of developing the intellect if you're not utilizing the full capacity that nature has given us? Yeah. You know, I don't think that nature gave us 50-50 because it wanted us to use 90-10. Hmm. Beautifully said. And so I want to go back to this moment where after you've been trained, what was the moment when you realized that there was something unique to what you wanted to offer to the world? It's when Ziva really started to coalesce and you said, that obviously there is value in what it is that I've been learning, but that there was something unique that you wanted to offer or how you wanted to impact people. What was that moment when that started to really coalesce and crystallize for you? So that was around 2016, 2017, like when I was developing the Ziva technique and started asking these questions, you know, how does nature want to use me? What is unique about? Well, it's a great question to ask, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Um, Because honestly, meditation Right now we think about it as like, oh, yoga pants and Instagram influencers and whatever. But when I started teaching nine years ago, it was just like me and some monks. Like in New York City, if you Googled New York City meditation, you could find Buddhist meditation centers and Ziva. Totally. And that was pretty much it um, with a few exceptions. But anyway, I come out of a largely male dominated, very masculine, very patriarchal lineage. Interesting. And you look, I mean, I do puja every time I, you know, teach somebody to meditate. I do puja to a whole painting of 20 dudes. Mm. And I was like, whoa. But there was clearly this rising of the divine feminine happening. It's happening now. It's been happening for the past many years. And it's like, what is the feminine role here in this? And I think that what's happening on a big scale is just direct access. You know, it's no longer like back in the day, it was, you know, well, only the priests can read the Bible. So we have to trust the priest to tell us what the Bible is saying. You know, there's always been some layer in between us and God. Yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons why I think meditation is so beautiful is that Oprah calls it mainlining God, you know, just mm. direct access to the divine. And if you don't like the G word, you can use nature or your own higher power, whatever you like to sure. call it. But I definitely wanted to break out of the dogma and the doctrine and the group think and the largely patriarchal, like guru descendant, guru disciple lineage. And that was scary because I had been in my own nest with my own deal. Um, but, and I needed that nest to be very honest. I needed to have that safety and security to grow and strengthen my wings. Yeah. But then I, I left the nest and that's when you really strengthen your wings is when you start flying on your own. And, and then you have to ask these hard questions. Well, what do I bring to the table? What is unique about the way that I teach this? Who am I speaking to? What problems am I solving? And then I realized, oh, I really speak to high performers, right? My, my superpower is taking these esoteric concepts and making them incredibly accessible and attractive. And then let's, what problems am I solving? Well, people think they're too busy to 
meditate and everybody thinks they're meditation failures. And so it was really just the solving of that and the answering of those questions is how the Ziva technique was born. And then we created Ziva online and that was already very successful. But when the book came out, anytime you spend that much time writing something, you know, you really crystallize your thinking on it, your philosophies about it. And it makes you examine some things. And so anyway, when the book came out, it just became a massive boon to everything else. Now just more people can find out about Ziva all the, and it's more accessible. And how would you describe, so if someone asked you what the Ziva technique is. It's what? a trifecta of mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting. Mm. So the three M's mindfulness to deal with your stress in the now meditation to get rid of your stress from the past and my, manifesting to help with your dreams for the future. Oh, beautiful. I love that. And in terms of how it is taught for someone who would want to, like, why would someone choose you versus another modality of meditation? Well, most of the modalities that people are choosing right now are apps. There's like 58 million people have downloaded one of the two most popular meditation apps right now, but there's only 1 million paid users, which suggests to me that there's 57 million people out there looking for a meditation that works for them. Mm. And I, I see it hundreds of times a week where people are like, oh, I downloaded this app, but I'm not really using it. You know, I did it. It was kind of cute, but it didn't change my life. Oh, I don't really, I don't know if I'm doing it right. I feel like I'm failing. I'm still having so many thoughts because people think that thoughts are the enemy. So really our biggest quote unquote competitor is people calling something that I would not call meditation, calling it meditation. Now I'm not saying that it's not valuable. I think that it's, you know, these apps have done a, a lot. It's helped us to bring meditation into the zeitgeist yeah. and help to make it not weird. And it's been a great gateway drug for so many folks. And so I'm not trying to diss anybody or anything here. Like God bless it. Totally. And when people are ready to become self-sufficient, that's when they come to me, right? When people are like, Oh, I don't want to be tethered to my phone for meditation, <laughs> just kind of like having an AA meeting at, an, at a liquor store, you know, <laughs> um, then they come to Ziva. And I'd say one of the things that's really special is that we, we make people self-sufficient. So we give them the keys to the car and the driving instructions so that they can do this stuff on their own. They don't need Wi-Fi or headphones or their phone to be charged or a quiet space. You can do it at your work. You can do it on a plane. You can do it with your kids screaming in the next room. And also what I found is that the calm, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Mm. Like you could meditate all day, but if you're not manifesting and you're not clear about what it is that you want, it's very hard for nature to give you the thing. Conversely, you could manifest all day, line your walls with vision boards and watch the secret on repeat. But if you're not meditating and your body is riddled with stress, mm. chances are you don't believe that you deserve your desires. Yeah. And we don't get what we want in life. We get what we believe we deserve. And yeah. so the whole really is greater than the sum of its parts. And then just quickly, the way that we use mindfulness is to help people with that purge, with that detox. So when they start a practice as powerful as this, when the body starts purging, it's easy to want to jump ship then because who wants to feel their feelings? You know, yeah. there's billions of dollars of industry ensuring that we never have to feel sure. a feeling. And so that's where we use the mindfulness is just to give people the tools to sit into it, to lean into it, to feel it fully so that they can move through to the new now. Yeah. Well, it's so much of the, the men's work that we're in right now as well yeah. is how do we get those tools for people to consciously integrate that into their into their communication, into their relationships. and Like teaching people how to feel their how, stuff. How to feel their feelings. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's just, and ever since I started doing this work specifically, it's again, it's when you talk about how there's billion dollar industries specifically constructed to help people not do it. But again, it's like anytime I'm aware that I want to like have a beer or eat shitty food, 
it's like, what am I feeling right now that I don't want to feel that this thing is such a call? And it's so interesting. It's like any urge, whether that's to numb with a substance, whether that's like to go into your phone, it's just oftentimes because you are feeling something that you would prefer not to feel right now. So what do you do? If you're like, oh, I want to get on Instagram or I want to have a beer, you ask that question. What do you well, do? It, well, it, it, the way that it comes up, it's like, I'm just aware of that, that like, if I am distracted now and I've kind of have like this taxonomy of like, when I go to these things like shitty food or to alcohol or to my phone, which is like one of the, the biggest kind of issues in my, in my life, um, as one of these distractors, uh, you can just ask yourself the question. It's like, what don't I want to feel that I'm feeling? And oftentimes I'm aware of it. You know, if I'm in my computer, if I'm in work, I'm feeling stressed, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm challenged by focus and hard work. Um, you know, if I go into, especially food, like like uh, masturbation was one of me for a really long time again. I was like in that place of overwhelm, that was where I would seek to release tension, you know? Um, and I think it's just a valuable understanding of like how our emotions drive our actions subconsciously and then what we do with guys is again and what you're doing with, with meditation with this mindfulness aspect it's almost just like this exposure component of like the more space you can create for you to sit with your emotions and not need to alleviate or change them the more capable you will be of integrating those emotions into your actions and into your communication consciously mm. because most of the time it's like one of the the teachers of the modality i i oftentimes use called gestalt communication he would say like that which we don't express we suppress and it just sits there and so just what you're talking about it's like oftentimes with with men it is not that you know we we are upset we're frustrated we're angry and when we don't literally express that or communicate it it goes down and it doesn't just like leak into our experience by maybe snapping at somebody or having more beers than you thought you would uh, but that oftentimes it can bubble up and explode out into you know people really blowing up their lives or acts of violence and so it's like i love to hear that you you kind of start in that arena of giving people those kinds of tools and then when you do that you can start to transcend that into you know the realms of meditation as you guys see me use it which is really beautiful yeah. It's like, if you don't do that, if you don't ask those questions or have those tools, then it, it becomes like a volcano it's pressure cooker. And then people are terrified of ever even dipping their toe into their emotions because like, if I even feel that at all, I'm going to blow, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to break down. Like nothing is going to break inside of you. If you cry, you don't lose anything except for toxins out of your eyeballs. Mm. And then you're going to feel better on the other side. But I understand the fear because we've been suppressing it for so long. And the meditation just it, it bit by bit, day by day, sitting by sitting, you're releasing that pressure. So that when you go on a retreat with you, or if you go, if you start to ask those questions, what am I feeling? You can actually answer it, know what the emotion is, feel it, and then move through to the new now. I think a lot of people come to meditation expecting it to numb things for them or expecting them to feel good for 15 minutes or 20 minutes. It's like, if you're looking to feel good for 15 minutes, go smoke some pot, you know, go drink some wine. There's plenty of things you can do to feel nice for a few minutes. Ziva ain't it. Like what we're up to is eradicating the entire backlog of stresses you've ever accumulated in your whole life. So what is, what is the application of the Ziva technique look like in the meditation aspect? I don't understand the question. <laughs> like what does it look like for people who are practicing Ziva? 
Okay. So if you were to read the book or do the online course, then once you graduate, because even in the book or in the online course, again, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom and the driving instructions. Yeah. And then you would wake up and you would do your first sitting ideally before coffee, breakfast, or computer. And it's like, you're filling up your reservoirs with bliss and fulfill fulfillment and the ability to adapt to life. And then in where you would have had the coffee or the chocolate or the nap, or maybe the <laughs> mid-afternoon masturbation break, whatever you're doing to like, you know, wake up or relieve stress. That's when you would do your second sitting. Yeah. And then, and also because it's so restful, you don't want to do it right before sleep yeah. because it's, it's like taking an hour and a half nap right before bed. So you don't want to do that. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so you do you start with the mindfulness and then you move into the meditation and then you finish with the manifesting. And so this is something that I'm excited for you to extrapolate on. So when you talk about manifesting, what does that mean? Because mm -hmm. I think again, like at a high level, people get that, but for you, how do you define manifesting? The simplest definition is consciously creating a life you love. Yeah. And that sounds simple because it is, but not that many people are doing it. Not that many people are asking questions like how much money do I want to make this year? What, how much sex do I want to have in a week? What do I want my friends group to look like? Mm. What do I want my impact to be on the planet? Not many people are asking that. They're asking questions like, why can't I lose this weight? Why does she have a boyfriend and I don't? Why did he get a raise and I didn't? Why, you know, it's victim, it's blaming, it's complaining. And then we even convince ourselves that we're praying, but we're secretly complaining. <laughs> and if the thing is, if you ask shitty questions, you're going to get shitty answers. If you ask the question, why can't I lose this weight? Oh, well, because you're lazy and, you know, you don't deserve to have happiness or confidence. Why can't I have a boyfriend? Well, because you're old and ugly and nobody's interested in you. And so if we ask our body terrible questions, it's going to give us terrible answers. So with the manifesting, we utilize the sacred time at the end of the meditation where the right and left hemispheres of the brain are functioning in unison. We have just de-excited the nervous system. We have just accessed source energy. Mm. We have just reminded ourselves that we are God pretending to be human. And then what we do is we take this very sacred de-excited time and we start to plant the seeds for what we want our future to look like. And we start to ask questions like, what's one thing I would love? What would I love right now? Mm. And that is it. What's your answer? What would I love right now? Yeah. Going into the weekend. What's one thing you would love? I would love to have abandonment and pure joy tomorrow at our mutual friend's birthday party. Yay! Are you going to be there? We can do that. Yay, yes. Let's do it. Perfect. <laughs> Um, and the thing about that question, what would I love right now? And this is a tweak that I learned from Mary Morrissey. You might know her. I don't know her. Uh, she's amazing. Um, she's in that TLC group. Yeah, sure. I, I think she's in TLC. Anyway, she's a masterful teacher. She's taught in 2 million folks and she's been teaching about manifesting for decades. Yeah. And she has people ask the question, what would I love? right yeah. now. Because if you ask love, it puts you into spirit. If you ask right now, it's putting you into present moment versus not what do I want? Not what, what do I need? Not what should I have? Not what do I deserve? But what would I love? Yeah. Which is pure possibility. And it could be big. It could be small. It doesn't matter. Um, and Mary Morrissey has a lot of fun stories about this, but here's the trick to manifesting. If there is one, it's imagining your dream as if it's happening now. 
as if it is the current reality. Instead of, again, what uh, the big mistake a lot of folks are making is that they're worshiping the space between where they are and where they think they should be. And that is the definition of stress. Mm. The space between where you are and where you think you should be is the only thing that ever creates stress in your life. Mm. I'm in a ditch. I wish I wasn't in a ditch. You know, you could be having a great time in the ditch. That's, I love repeating lines that, that really register, but stress is the distance between where I am and where I think I should be. That's it. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, back to you. So instead of like worshiping that space, because what we put our attention on grows, so we don't want to water those weeds of the space between, we instead imagine the dream as if it is happening now. We bring the future reality into the present reality. And as much as possible, we want to make that a five sensory experience. What does that dream sound like? What does it taste like? What does it look like? And most importantly, what does it feel like? You get into that feeling space as if your dream is happening now. And you do that from that de-excited space post-meditation. And then some magic starts to really happen. And and what my students report is that the gap between their desires and their desires becoming manifest gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Mm. And you, you had such a beautiful quote. You were talking about this really briefly before we started about like the order of how these things happen and that like you would, you already have it before your oh, desires there. Can yeah. You so that? you were saying like, what do you think about the secret? And I was like, I'm God bless it. I'm so thankful for it. And, you know, a lot of our mutual friends are in it. And I think they did a beautiful job of speaking to where consciousness was in the nineties. I think it came out and, and it had to prey upon at least a little bit people's all be happy when syndrome, you know, manifest the Ferrari, put it on your vision board, you'll get the Ferrari and then you will be happy. Whereas when you look at manifesting from the viewpoint of the Vedas, which the Vedas are this beautiful ancient body of knowledge from whence yoga, acupuncture, feng shui, a lot of these ancient modalities of healing are born out of the Vedas. Veda is a Sanskrit word. It means knowledge, knowledge of what knowledge of natural law. So it's like, Hey, here's how nature works. You can either get in flow with that and get with line with that or you can be rigidly attached to how you think life should be showing up and let nature bash you against the rocks. One is infinitely more elegant than the other. It's not a doctrine or a dogma. It's just, if you want to have mastery over your own life, it would behoove you to understand the laws of nature. And so if you look at manifesting from the point of view of the Vedas, it's that manifestation precedes desire, Mm. meaning that your dreams are already on the way to you or you wouldn't even want them. Your dreams are different than my dreams. And and where this requires a bit of nuance and mastery is that that rule, that slogan really only applies to meditators because if you don't have a way to tap into your own intuition, if you don't have a way to access source energy, then it's very easy to confuse addictive longings with intuitive desires. And and you ask a heroin addict what they want. They're like, oh, I'd really like some more heroin, please. You ask Mm. a workaholic what they want. Oh, I really, I need to, I need some more work, you know? And so unless you start to transcend your addictions, which is the I'll be happy when syndrome, you start to realize that your fulfillment comes internally. Once you have mastered that, then you can start to trust your own desires. You can start to see them as an indicator of where nature is trying to use you to deliver your fulfillment and not where you need to go to fill yourself up. Can we say that one a little bit slower so yeah. we can really grasp it? It's really, it's really beautiful. <laughs> so I think it's one of the most beautiful benefits of meditation is that it transitions you from being a bag of need looking to be fulfilled 
and it turns you into fulfillment looking for need looking for expression yeah yeah like how can i help how can i contribute and it's not from a place of martyrdom because you can only be a martyr if you're dealing with limited resources mm. and if you're tapping into the very source of time the source of creativity the source of energy every day twice a day you ain't a martyr anymore you are fulfillment and your desires are an indicator of where nature wants to use you to go and deliver your fulfillment. And what is it about meditation that gets you into that space where you're available to that? Because you're floating your brain and body with dopamine and serotonin every day, twice a day. Yeah. You're quite literally giving yourself the body and brain of bliss. Yeah. So you are no longer chemically needy. You're not like, well, I need the caffeine to energize <laughs> sure. me. Yeah. You know, I love that John Mackey quote that you shared with me. I put it in my book, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. When he said <laughs> that your energy is not your own. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a chapter called Why Meditation is the New Caffeine. And I, I quoted you on oh, it. Oh, amazing. Um, and oh, I lost the train of thought. We were talking about why this space is available to you. Oh, yeah. After because you're flooding your brain and body with dopamine and serotonin. So yeah. you, you were chemically not as needy anymore. And, and, and there's the, you know, the old fables of one of the gurus back in the day who took a whole sheet of acid while he was lecturing and just kept lecturing to a whole group of people. And his point was that acid isn't taking me anywhere. Like I'm already there. You know, I'm <laughs> such a connoisseur of consciousness. I'm already in such a heightened state that you could give me massive amounts of consciousness altering substances. Yeah. And that's not transporting me anywhere. Yeah. And, and similarly, once you start meditating, you don't need the caffeine to energize you or the sleeping pills to make you go to sleep at night or the anti-anxiety medication to make you not anxious. It's like you start becoming more reliant on your own internal pharmacy mm -hmm. and you start to have the ability to upregulate and downregulate in a self-sufficient manner. Now that is not to further any stigma around antidepressants or anti-anxiety. Lots of people meditate and still use them. No problem. Yeah. But I think ultimately the goal for all of us ideally is self-sufficiency that we we're really utilizing our internal pharmacy. Hmm. Beautifully said. And it makes me think of, we were even talking about it before we got onto the show, but uh, we're, we're fans of a, a teacher from I think the 1940s named Neville Goddard who talks beautifully about this modality of feeling is the secret and it really influenced. And as you're talking about, this makes me think about something that I do with my, my speaking clients of like before they are getting ready for a big talk, like a very practical application of this that I've, I've seen. And then obviously I'd like just hearing you talk about it of how much deeper and more capable you are of taking people into this when they're truly meditating. But, um, within neurolinguistic programming, it's called anchoring. And so it's this idea of when people are getting ready for a talk, I just had a client who's getting ready for TEDx Oakland. And so, you know, on the, the last week while she's prepping, we have her like, what does the room look like? And so we drop her into like a very quick, just meditation. And so she goes in there and, or maybe this was like a mindful exploration or visualization, yeah, visualization. And, um, so we go into the room and she's painting a picture of the room of how many seats are filled of the 500 that are there. What does the stage look like? What does the logo look like? Where are the cameras? Um, and we have her rehearsing the final lines that she's saying and she's talking through. It's like when she says those final words, like what do the people do? And she's like, they're standing up over there and then it comes up and it's like, and how loud is it? And she's like, it's this loud. And then you just take them from that place of like, how do you feel? And she's like, I look elated. And she, you know, she's in that state. And it's again, there's something about showing the people that I'm working with of like that, that feeling of what she's after is available to her right now that she doesn't need to do the thing to have that state, that the state is available if only her attention 
is focused into the right place, right? And like intuitively she can go there and that how powerful it is when we just take the time to afford our attention to what what was really supporting us doing what we want to do in the world. Mm, what a gift for you to give to those speakers. <laughs> I, want to, I want you to work with me on my next speech. Well, Emily is, is an absolutely epic speaker as well for anyone who's mm -hmm. listening to this and wants to bring in a performance uh, speaker, mindfulness, meditation. High kicks. Uh, instructor, and high kicks. And you actually did it for me right before Summit. You remember I was speaking at Summit and I just happened to run into you at like the water cooler and you were like, yeah. I think you asked me like, how do you want them to feel or how do you want to feel? And yeah. I was like, oh, thank God I ran into you. <laughs> but this is I highlighting- no. One of the biggest things that, that I teach with the manifesting is that you're never chasing the thing. You're always chasing the feeling you assume the thing will bring. Yeah. And it's such a gift that you're giving people this experience of the elation, the, the pride, the generosity, because you, that's something you can give yourself right now. All right. So while we're here and we're moving towards, towards an hour and I know you have to get back to the West Village. So for the people who are listening to this and they're going to finish this and go into their day, how would you want them to close? What is it that you would want them to consider? It's maybe even just touch like the spearhead of this type of manifesting. What mm. would you want them to consider? What's the question you want them to ask themselves? Well, really, I mean, what's the big idea? What, what is my big idea? I've been thinking about this and, and it's, I want people to really question the idea that you don't have time to meditate. Yeah. I want people to really look at what stress is costing them financially and time-wise in their lives and, and reframe this thing because the, we have the key to the kingdom available to us. Like the kingdom of heaven is within and the, and the fastest way to get there is by closing our eyes and meditating. And yet we'll find a million reasons why not to. And so I want people to really get honest with all of their excuses. I don't have time. I'm too busy. I have kids. I can't afford it. It's like the book right now is $11 on Amazon. You know, you can get that book shipped to you tomorrow <laughs> on Amazon. And, and so it's, it's, there's just, there's too many ways to make it work. Yeah to validate your excuses anymore. And I know that's kind of negative and you were trying to move people into the positive. And so, so I guess here's the reframe on that. Imagine what it would feel like yeah. to have ample time in your day. Imagine what it would feel like to wake up feeling refreshed in the morning and not exhausted. Imagine what it would feel like to truly be ultra present with your children and not frustrated or impatient. Imagine what it would feel like to feel so confident in your business meetings because you know the intuition is using you as a vessel to deliver to your company. Imagine what it would feel like to walk out on stage feeling confident that you are a vessel for nature to use you to deliver ideas. All of those things are available to you, but you have to do the work of connecting to the divine. I had goosebumps while you're doing that. <laughs> but it's like, and it's again, even like what you just did there, which is interesting for people who are actually like in positions, you know, whether, whether as an entrepreneur or a speaker, like even that technique of like when you are offering someone a service or an idea or a product, that idea of getting people to imagine that desired state of being like liberates that possibility, even like in a fractional capacity for yeah. people to kind of go there, which is powerful. And I felt that as you were talking about it. And yeah. so it's really powerful. Yeah, it's like if, you, if you're dealing with insomnia, what's one night's sleep worth to you? Mm. You know, I'm talking 11 years I've been sleeping now. Yeah. And I had crippling insomnia. So it's, it just, 
The reality is most of your problems, most of your excuses for not meditating are likely stress related. (laughs) So if you got rid of the stress, you'd probably have a lot more time. So tell me, so as we bring this towards a close, I want to know what is one story that showcases why you love what you now get to spend your time doing in the world? A highlight. It's really hard to pick one. (laughs) I... You can you can tell a couple if you want. Well, I would just say that my crowning achievement in life is we have this testimonial doc at Ziva, and it's we're over a thousand now, wow. and and that's just just people who we're not even soliciting them. It's just people who have written in or written to us on Facebook or posted in the groups or emailed us, and we categorize them by like person type, what course they took, is a testimony about their sleep, is it about their digestion, is it about their productivity, is it about their parenting, and so and we have to. It's like a 17 tab spreadsheet because we have to categorize it. And I would say that that is likely my crowning achievement in life is that not only do we have all these testimonials, but the beautiful myriad of things that it's healing in people's lives. Um, But most recently we just did this manifesting masterclass and this woman was estranged from her daughter. And so she hadn't seen her granddaughter in years and anyone who's a grandmother, which probably 0% of your audience. (laughs) (laughs) Hi Judy. Hi Judy Gray. Hi Judy. Hi mom. My mom is listening to this. She's a grandma. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But I, I, you know, I've always knew it was a thing when someone becomes a grandma that it's like the love for their child that they feel, but it's 10 X because they don't have the responsibility and the poopy diapers. It's just love and play and fun and connection. And also your legacy. It's like, as you start to face your own mortality, I think you see your grandchild as a, a piece of you that lives on, mm. which is really special. Sure. So anyway, this woman was estranged from her daughter. And so she wasn't able to see her grandchild and it was killing her. She was so upset about it. And then she started meditating. And then in the manifestation, actually, she imagined, well, how do I want to feel? And she imagined like her and her daughter and like just wrapped in love. She imagined them like sitting together and wrapped in this love and this light. And she's the next day her daughter called her. And then that weekend she was able to see her grandchild. And that's just top of mind right now. It's not the most illustrative story of the meditation, but I think it's really beautiful. One time I was teaching a private client and he was, um, he had Parkinson's and it was pretty pronounced and he was embarrassed about it. He was always, you know, like hiding his tremors. And so when we first sat down and I gave him his mantra, his tremors got really, really pronounced and they got exacerbated. And then he closed his eyes and he started doing it silently and his tremors stopped immediately. And I was watching him and it felt like a miracle to me. And I started crying because I was just like really powerful to witness. And then afterwards I had him open his eyes and he said, did you notice that my tremors stopped? And I said, yeah, I did notice. And about five minutes later they came back and the next day, same thing. We closed his eyes. They stopped immediately. And then afterwards, 10 minutes later, they came back. And then the next day it was 15 minutes later, they came back and then 20. So it wasn't that meditation was curing his Parkinson's, but that dopamine dump that was happening in his brain was giving him a reprieve from the the tremors from the symptoms of parkinson's and so that was really beautiful to watch we started working out with the navy seals and with the army base here in wow. brooklyn and you know just to see it really catching on is it's, it's thrilling yeah well emily fletcher you are an absolute delight and um as we wrap things up is there anything else that you would want people who are listening to know you just talked about um some real talk about getting people to actually commit to this, make it a part of their lives, but anything else that you would want people to know about meditation, 
what it can do to truly transform people's lives for the better? Well, two things. One, it's a skill. Yeah. And just because it's simple does not mean you should already magically know how to do it. Sure. And there's a lot of people calling a lot of different things meditation. And so it can be very confusing. People are calling sound baths meditation and kundalini yoga meditation and walking in the woods meditation. And so it's like, just do your research. I would say that meditation is where you're accessing a verifiable fourth state of consciousness and where you're getting rid of your stress from your past, um, not by riding on a bike. So one, know that it's a skill. So it does require training for 99.9% of the population. And two, thoughts are not the enemy. Mm. You're allowed to have thoughts. You're allowed to have thoughts. The mind thinks involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily. Mm. So if you've ever felt like a meditation failure because you couldn't clear your mind, you're not a failure. You likely just don't have any training yet. Mm. And so it's about finding some sort of direction in that to like transcend that. Well, it's about using a tool to have a catharsis or a purge in the meditation so that you feel better in the rest of your day and the rest of your life. Like I get really excited when my students have stupid thought filled, annoying, shallow meditations that they hate. Then I get really excited because I'm like, great. Now you're going to stop being so precious about the sitting and you're going to start to notice how you're feeling in the rest of your day. We meditate to get good at life, not to get good at meditation. Yeah. Beautifully said. So for Emily, for people who are listening to this, what is, what is the best place to go that people can connect with you, your teaching? I know that you guys have a free meditation that you guys have available. Yeah, we have a lot of free things. So if you go to zivameditation.com and Ziva is kind of a weird word, it's Z-I-V-A meditation.com. You can access the online course, which is Ziva online. And that's only 15 minutes a day for 15 days. The book is on there. And yes, people can download this stressless guided visualization. It's kind of the companion for the book. And also people can get the first three days of the online course for free. So you can check it out, see the back end of it. It's really beautiful. Um, and then the first three days is where I teach the mindfulness. So there's a lot of free stuff available and it's all at zivameditation.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you for not only doing what you are doing in the world, but being who you are and the absolute shining light that you are. Jasper is one lucky little kid. I love you. Thank and you for having me on. Too. And thank you for shining so bright. I know we don't connect all that much, but I'm, I stalk you from afar and I'm just thrilled and elated both for you and for the men of the world and the humans of the world <laughs> that you are stepping into the capacity that you have and are. Well, I feel, you know, as a, it's, it's interesting. It's like you bring up a good point that I think it might even be good to close on. I said this to a man the other day who's becoming a new friend. And what I, what's become clear to me is that where we don't see each other that often, but when I think about my friends, my friends are, and I would certainly consider you a friend, the the people who I choose to be friends with are people that I'm just really called to support because when I'm really called to support people, I feel good and I believe in what it is that they're doing in the world. So then the world benefits from it yeah. and you are very, very easy to support. And one of the reasons why I consider you a good friend, even though we don't see each other and it's uh, even though, you know, we don't spend as much time together, I feel very connected to you and I believe in what you're doing in the world and I'm very grateful to see it growing and impacting more people. Same. Also, let's have some play dates. We both have baby sons. Let's just play put date it, it up. Put it on the calendar. Okay. We'll include that in the show notes. We'll <laughs> well, set, you we'll guys can meet us in Fort Green Park. We got it. <laughs> when the sun, the sun has gone down. So hopefully you enjoyed the, uh, the beautiful relaxing sounds of fire trucks and planes. And, uh, now we've got cold Brooklyn to walk out into. So yeah, we do. I loved it. 
Love you. Signing off.